Hi, and welcome to the Homeschool Snapshots podcast. I'm Pam Barnhill, your host, and this is the podcast that gives you a peek into the lives of the homeschoolers next door. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Homeschool Snapshots podcast, episode number 39. I am Pam Barnhill, your host, and I'm so happy that you're joining me here today. Well, I must say one of the things that I love about hosting the podcast is getting to make new friends. And this was certainly the case with Diane Lockman. So I read Diane's book a few years ago and really enjoyed the book and thought, boy, it would be great to be able to ask her a few questions. And because of the podcast, I get to do that. And the really great thing is because of the podcast, you guys get to listen to all the answers. So I think that's a lot of fun. Diane was a great interview. We really dug into some of the philosophy behind her book and her website and all of the great information that's there. I think you're really going to enjoy it. So we'll get on with the interview right after this word from our sponsor. Today's program is brought to you by Maestro Classics Stories in Music. Maestro Classics MP3s and CDs with narrated stories and activity books is the best way to add classical music curriculum to your homeschool. Visit maestroclassics.com this Black Friday weekend for the biggest sale of the year. All CDs with activity books will be on sale for under $10. And as a Homeschool Snapshots listener, you can save an extra 17% off the sale price. Just enter the coupon code PAM at checkout. Shop Black Friday weekend and get free shipping on all orders with guaranteed delivery well before Christmas. Hey, and speaking of Christmas, are you ready for the holidays? Get into the spirit with Tchaikovsky's The Nutcracker Ballet featuring one of the Barnhill family's favorite storytellers, Jim Weiss, and the London Philharmonic Orchestra. This CD sold out last year, so get yours soon and make The Nutcracker a Christmas tradition. Give the gift of music this holiday season and visit maestroclassics.com. That's maestro spelled M-A-E-S-T-R-O classics.com, where the best classical music curriculum awaits your homeschool. Lockman is a veteran homeschool mom, a classical education coach, and the author of the classical education guide, Trivial Mastery. At her website, The Classical Scholar, Diane offers an abundance of resources, including online courses, planning aids, podcasts, articles, and more. She is a passionate and articulate advocate for teaching our children, quite simply, how to read, write, think, and speak well thus equipping them to become lifelong learners ready to engage with the world. Diane joins us today to share a bit more about her experiences and philosophy. Diane, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Pam. I'm so happy to be here with you. I am happy you're here. Could you start by telling me a little bit about your family? Yes, I am a Southerner by birth. I'm from Tennessee originally, so if you hear a little bit of accident there, that's what that is. But my husband and I, we met in church when I was a teenager and he was in college. We've been married 37 years now. We were both quite the yuppies in terms of career and all. So we didn't start having children until 12 years into our marriage. And we actually had a son who was born before my daughter Meredith and my son Connor. And he was born with a genetic fatal condition called Mm -hmm. trisomy 13. So he passed away as an infant and that changed everything for us. So I've got a 
living daughter now, Meredith, who's in London. She's just finished up her master's in political theory at the London School of Economics. And my son, Connor, is a senior at Indiana University studying accounting and information systems. So it's really the loss of my son that changed how we parented and gives me my why for why I'm so passionate about classical homeschooling and equipping moms to bring their kids to you know that educated status of reading, thinking, writing, and speaking. Wow, that is quite a story. So was, I mean, did you start homeschooling from the beginning or did it come about a bit later? No, we were actually in a really good school district in the Atlanta, Georgia area at the time when my early, my daughter started going to school. And I really had no intention of doing homeschooling. I hadn't even heard of it, but my husband was, we were at a missions conference and we both felt called to go to seminary. So he resigned from his law partnership in Atlanta and we hopped it up to Lexington and started there at Asbury Seminary. And it was while I was there that I began to feel like we might be moving overseas. And I just begged the Lord. I said, Lord, I just can't give my babies up to a boarding school like a lot of missionaries do. And so it was then that I happened upon homeschooling and I said, I've got to try this. This is resonating with me. And so at the time I thought, I'll get used to it now. I'll learn about it so that when we do go overseas, I'll be ready. But of course, I was just so excited about it. I had to go on and start and I I went all the way through until, you know, we graduated them. So, And did you ever make it overseas? Uh, We did. We did. We did not ever move permanently overseas, but we spent a summer in Peru in Huancayo up in the Andes Mountains. And my husband and well, we went to England. We taught in England together. And my husband actually did more traveling than I did. He was in India and Kenya, Estonia, several places. But with the kids being so young, I just felt like I should stay home with them. So we only took them to England and to Peru. So homeschooling really kind of became your mission field there. It really is. It's my mission field. I really feel called to equip moms more than anything. I mean, I love teaching kids. I love teaching teenagers. You know, I do have some courses online with teenagers, but I really feel like mom's education is really the most important thing when she is completely on board and alert and paying attention to the clues. She can give them a great education and equip them so that they can be the leaders that we need one day. Yeah. Well, let's start off with a multiple choice question. Okay. Your homeschool day is most like which literary classic? Would it be A, Cheaper by the Dozen, B, Much Ado About Nothing, C, Around the World in 80 Days, or D, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Oh, oh, that's a tough one. I think maybe Much Ado About Nothing because we really enjoyed Shakespeare and there's quite a bit of humor that goes on here. So I would probably pick that one. Okay. So you kind of got a comedy going there. Yeah. yeah. Or you did because you've graduated everybody. Yes. And I graduated too. Yeah. Well, if it's 2 a.m. and you're lying awake in bed, what's keeping you up? Well, these days it would be probably hot flashes. (laughs) But back... But back when the kids were still here at home, I probably would be just really concerned about their spiritual condition, making sure that they you know, knew the Lord and that I had done everything that I could to disciple them. And I think for me, that was more important than actual academics. The academics, is, of course, is really important. But my one big prayer for them is that they'll know the Lord and that they'll be faithful and follow him. And, you know, even if they go off on paths where most of us do and wander off a little bit, that they'll come back. And I just probably would have been up praying at two in the morning if I was awake. Yeah. And it sounds like even with your focus on that and thinking that the academics are going to take care of themselves, I mean, obviously not completely, but you know, your focus being on the spiritual side as opposed to the academic side, it still turned out great on the academic side, it sounds like. 
Yeah, we really had an excellent education here. And my daughter, for instance, she scored a perfect score on the two language parts of the SAT exam. And she did very well in math. She didn't do as well in math as my son did. But yeah, we had a great education. They both got merit scholarships. And I attribute a lot of that to the version of classical, my interpretation of classical as a philosophy. And we really did have a customized education that met our family's needs. And that really made all the difference, I think. Wow. Wow. And yeah, that's interesting. That's not what was keeping you up at night, that that turned out okay. So that's good. Yeah. Well, let's talk about books, because I know you guys, you're big fans. So favorite family read aloud ever? My favorite family read aloud was Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe. And that would be the one that was illustrated by N.C. Wyeth. He was an illustrator back in the early 1900s, I think. And I just love that book because I like to pick read aloud books that have that touch the children on one level and touch me on a level. And that one had a whole lot of allusions to being lost and being found and all kinds of spiritual discussions that were going on in the background that they may not have picked up when I was reading it with them. Kind of like in Voyage of the Dawn Treader, if you've read that uh, by C.S. Lewis, there's a scene in there where Eustace, the little bad boy, has this dragon skin and he can't get it off by himself. And Aslan has to take it off for him. That kind of double illusion going on where the kids just think it's about dragon skins and all, but we as moms are reading it and really being touched and moved on a, a deeper level. Those are the kind of books that I love reading aloud. And it's the kind of books that I hope they'll go back to one day. Yeah. Yeah. Those are good stories. Well, you came to homeschooling kind of like me a little later because, mm-hmm. you know, you had your kids a little older. So what was one thing you learned while homeschooling that you didn't know before? Well, probably one of the biggest things I learned was how to judge a debate round. (laughs) (laughs) My kids and I, my husband, the whole family, we jumped into competitive speech and debate when they were able at age 13. And I'll just give you a little bit of background on why we did that. We went to a conference here that was probably like three or four days, I think it was. It was put on by a place called Communicators for Christ. And I think they've changed their name since then. But this entire conference was put on by teenagers, and these teenagers were teaching the workshops. And I was so impressed, and I said, I've got to give my kids the ability to do that. And my kids were also really intrigued, too, because they wanted to be like those elder kids. And so we ended up joining the NCFCA, which is a, a Christian Speech and Debate League that's a national league. And we did that for the entire time, from 13 until 18. And so one of the things that I was already familiar with was public speaking, but I didn't really know how to argue or how to do an official debate. So that's probably one of the biggest aha moments I had was learning how to really listen to persuasive arguments and how to judge them. So, Oh, that is interesting. I don't think I've ever spoken with anybody who's talked about debate before. So that's kind of cool. Oh, if you you ever want to talk about it more, I've got lots to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about homeschool heroes, because you really have kind of blazed a path for yourself. But is there are there any homeschool heroes that you look up to? Well, I love literature, so I have to kind of frame it in terms of how I see the hero in literature. So I see that most literature, not all the most recent literature that we have out here, but most literature for most of human history has had a hero who has been on a quest. He's wanted something. And even in the beginning, if he didn't know what it was he wanted, by the end of the story, he knew what he wanted. He either got it or he didn't. And he encountered villains along the way, and he encountered obstacles and all that. So I frame it in terms of that. When I think about heroes, of course, I think about the Christ figure. In a lot of stories, there's always someone who sacrifices, who lays down their life for their friend, just like Jesus did. And so 
When I think about homeschooling moms in general, I think they're all heroes because they've given up things like you and your career, me and my career, the ability to work full time and be, you know, someone that your culture says you should be. And they give that up so they can stay home and raise these little kids. And they're really hoping that those children, those three, four, five, six, however many children, are going to have an exponential impact when they get out there because they've invested so much of their time and sacrificed themselves for those kids. So I don't really have one particular homeschooling hero in mind. Maybe if you pushed me on it, I'd probably say my friend Gwen, who had 12 kids, and she they're all okay now. They're adults, all, adults now, and they're all okay. But I think in general... Every homeschooling mom is a hero in some way, whether she's dealing with special needs or whether she had to work while she's homeschooling or whatever her obstacles and her villains are. Yeah. How do you handle homeschool moms who come to you and they have disappointment because of that? Because they've kind of devoted their life to this and maybe things didn't turn out quite like they had expected. What would you say to somebody? Yeah, I have some women that come to me that are disappointed, but by and large, I think most of them are disappointed in their own lack of motivation or the kids' lack of motivation. So don't hear a lot of women who say, you know, I I really shouldn't have done that or I'm not happy with the way it turned out, unless maybe their kids have gone off on a path as adults that they're not happy with. And for those women, I just say, keep praying, keep praying, because, you know, if you raise them in the word and you got, you know, you were discipling them faithfully, then they're going to come back even if they're off on a, a strange path right now. But I think that it's a huge sacrifice that we make to homeschool, but it's one that you're going to see the fruit one day. You may not see it immediately. And so you have to kind of temper the disappointment that you feel right now or the discouragement that you might be feeling right now. And just try to see the long view in terms of a story. If you try to think about that happy ending that you want to see and that you are reverse engineering all these years to get to, you know, just keep hoping it's going to turn out okay. I don't know many homeschooling kids who haven't done really well. And eventually, even if there is disappointment, I think you're going to be happy with the decision to homeschool. You know, I really like that answer to keep praying because it just reminds us that basically that's our big role right there. We can't control everything. We can't control what our kids do when they leave. All we can do is be faithful and lay out the best for them every day and then leave it in God's hands. And so our biggest role is to continue to pray. You are so right. And I pray more for my kids now that they're gone than I did when they were here in my home. You know, because once they leave, I hate to tell you this because it's sort of disturbing when you know that this is coming, but the academia out there is practically just, it's almost an entire liberal onslaught of ideas and disciplines and all that. And your kids have to be strong when they go out there into the college world or the university world even in Christian colleges. So I say prayer is so important while they're in college and then even afterwards. Like my daughter is now moving into the adult workforce and I'm just, I still pray for her as much as, you know, I pray all the time for her, you know? So it really is an important weapon that you have. Right, right. Well, what do you think your kids would say was the best part of being homeschooled? Getting to go to school in their pajamas. (laughs) (laughs) I just can't imagine why. Okay, what would they say was the worst part? Probably those grammar workbooks that I started using when we first got off the ground. (laughs) I don't want to name the name of the vendor, but they were not happy with all that drill. (laughs) And I know now that repetition is important, but all that mindless drill was not really valuable because it was sort of killing that love of learning. And 
And so now what I coach my moms to do is move on. Once they've mastered something, move on. You can always circle back and test it again if you feel like they've gotten a little rusty on it, but don't just push, push on the the drill if it's not important, if they don't need to learn it. Well, what about you? What would you say was the best part? Oh, probably just being their best friend. Honestly, I know my kids so well. They know me so well, which is kind of hard because that makes me vulnerable because I have been transparent and authentic with them. They've seen me cry. They've seen me cheer. They've seen me all in every potential, you know, stage of life. It's just, they know me and I know them too. And I am so grateful for that, especially in light of the fact that I lost my first son. When I lost him, I, my whole world was rocked. I really, I just didn't really understand the value of human life until I lost him. And then it was like, wow, every single day is a gift. And I need to make it my best day ever. And so I was just so grateful to have all those years with my two babies and now adults, you know, because we're still great friends. I was just on the phone with my son. I talked to my daughter this morning. I mean, they were just friends. It's great. What would you say was the hardest part? I think the hardest part for me was right around the time my son hit puberty because he wasn't really performing at the level I felt like he could perform at, especially in the area of math. And I was frustrated because I would try to get him to perform and he was just shutting down on me. He was really having some rebellious streak. And so I went to this, I was actually at this convention, this homeschooling convention, and I can't even remember the name of the guy that was in his workshop, but he was talking about boys and their dads. And he really convicted me. And I came home from that convention and I said to my husband, look, I need you to just take over with Connor. And it was really hard for me to give him up, but Really, I did sort of give him over to my husband when he was somewhere around 13. And my husband became involved with grading math homework. And of course, he did it differently than I did. Like instead of circling how many he missed and telling him to miss, you know, go correct them. My husband just said, you missed three, go find them. And that changed everything in terms of how he performed. But but also they started having a relationship in the morning. They go off and have some quiet time together in the morning and just talk about guy stuff. And so... While I saw the value of that, I knew that that needed to happen, that my son needed to become a man with his dad, you know, and mom, mom stopped, you know, hovering over him all the time. It was also really hard to just sort of let him go like that. But I did. And I see the value now and he's come back to me. So now, you know, we have a completely different relationship because he's an adult now, too. But that was probably the hardest part. But you know what? It was probably the thing that preserved that relationship. Yeah. And probably a lot of it also goes back to my own history with my family and some of the behaviors that women had with men. And I think that I just knew I needed to not be that dripping faucet, that woman who was nagging all the time and sort of making him shut down. So it was good for us. And I see now that it was the right thing to do. So, yeah, I was reading an article earlier today on Facebook, believe it or not. (laughs) It was through Roman Roads Media had posted it. And I'll include a link to it in the show notes. But it was exactly about this kind of thing that moms especially moms need to stop hovering over their boys and talking for their boys and things of that nature. And just really, and so that has really gotten me to thinking that. And then I also interviewed Cindy Rollins yesterday. Oh, boy. You know, eight boys. And, Mm -hmm. you know, she largely says a lot of the same stuff. And so this has Mm -hmm. got me thinking, my oldest boy is nine. So Mm -hmm. what are the next few years going to look like? And how can I be sure that Mm -hmm. I'm not that mom. And it sounds like you came up with a really good, you saw the problem that was there and you came up with a good solution for how to deal with it. 
Yeah. And I'll, I'll just give you a little bit of just background on it. Cause I didn't, it wasn't an original idea. I just was having a problem when I went to this convention and this guy just sort of showed up. But what he was talking about was how in the Old Testament, the circumcision of a boy is done by a man because only a man understands how tender and sensitive all that area is. And so he was sort of equating that to a young man, a young man moving into puberty, his sense of maleness and all, and how only a man can really speak to him without him feeling defeated and, you know, put down and all that stuff. So I think there was that whole idea of, a man needs to raise a man just like a woman needs to raise a woman. And, and that was helpful to me. So as you moved forward, you know, you said dad kind of took over math there for you for a while. Did mm-hmm. you seek out any additional opportunities for your son to learn from a male teacher? Yeah, we had we were really fortunate. We had dual credit opportunities here in town at uh, University of or Indiana University here in Indianapolis. And so I did not want to teach high school sciences here because I didn't have all the lab equipment and I knew it was really important that they had labs if they were going to get into some really good schools. So we put him down there in, uh, I think he was in 11th grade, in an a, a introductory biology class. And he took, well, the, the professor was a male. And then they also had these little tutorial classes that met twice a week and they had males in there too. So that was probably his other males, besides the dads who were helping coach speech and debate, which he was seeing those guys once a week. Right, right. Yeah, definitely got my brain turning about the whole mother-son relationship and how we can expand Mm -hmm. his educational opportunities going into the future. So, well, let's let's talk a little bit about your take on classical education, because I actually said earlier on Facebook, I was giving kind of an overview of the podcast season, and I told everybody I was going to be talking to you. And how Mm -hmm. I described you was, you were the person who said the trivium is not this ages and stages thing, kind of long before it was cool. You know, it's kind of cool now for everybody to say that. But you were (laughs) saying it a long time ago. Not a long time ago, but I can remember, you know, getting your book, gosh, four or five years ago. Yeah, it was a while back. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your take on classical education. Okay. Well, you know, I've, I've got a more mature look on it now since I've been through it with the kids and I've also done as a lot more research into it. But what happened, the catalyst was I tried to do the three stage chronological thing, you know, over 12 years and being the type A driven person, I was really running into problems like with these grammar workbooks and very frustrated because the kids weren't enjoying it and I wasn't either. And it was like, what's going on? How come this isn't working? So I actually started with a definition of trivium. And when I looked at that word, it's actually tri and vium. It's the two Latin pieces of that word are tri for three, and vium is from the word way. It means the intersection of three ways or three roads. So I thought, well, okay, first of all, an intersection is not the same thing as this chronological progression. It's more like a concurrence that happens. And so then I said, well, I want to find out what an ancient classical education really was like. So I started doing a lot of reading. And you can't find any pedagogy out there, or you couldn't back then, that was written by ancient people that talked about, well, this is how a classical education works, you know, like you would read about Common Core or something like that. But what I did find was I read a lot of biographies. I read a lot of histories of all these ancient people, and especially in Greece and Rome. And I came to this conclusion that there was a master and there was an apprentice. And there probably was more than one apprentice, but a small group of apprentices with a master. Like, for instance, Aristotle apprenticed Alexander the Great. 
And what they did was they started with an epic. They started with a piece of literature or a living text, if you were looking at Charlotte Mason's way sometimes. And they started with this text that was really important in their culture. And they would just immerse themselves in this text and and teach language skills and critical thinking skills and communication skills from this text. And so that's where all the different methods come in, the classical methods of, you know, narration and dictation and recitation and all that stuff. So anyway, that really revolutionized everything for me because I thought, wow, we're talking about skills. They actually defined an educated child for me. I didn't even have to define it. I could see that for 3,000 years, an educated child was one who followed the trivium. They, they had mastered their language skills. They had mastered their critical thinking skills, and they had mastered their communication skills. And then the way they used to do it in the old days is after that, they would then throw them into the more abstract thoughts, which the Romans called it the quadrivium, which was astronomy and math and all these other subjects. And so for me, I thought, wow, okay, so for K through eight, what we can do is focus on the skills because my kids almost got all the skills mastered, substantially at least, by the time they were ready for high school level work. And then in the high school years, when we have to comply with the state and we have to get ready for the college admissions officers, that's when we'll go deep on the subjects. And so I completely scrapped subjects once I came to this understanding. I stopped doing, you know, English grammar as a subject, I started teaching English grammar as a skill. And more often than not, I would teach it through the literature that we were reading. And for the sciences, we didn't do us. I tried, you know, one particular science textbook and my kids hated it. And so I said, forget that. We're going outside. We're doing it like Charlotte Mason. We're going to do the exploration. We're going to pay attention. We're going to use observation and all that stuff. So the way I think about classical is I think of it as a philosophy, how you think think about education. You want to raise a child who knows how to read, who knows her native language so that she can reason critically so that she can communicate effectively. And in that way, authentic classical is more like an umbrella that goes over all the methods because you could use any method if you're keeping those skills in mind. You can use unschooling as a method. You could use the well-trained mind as a method. You could use any method you want as long as you have in mind that we need to get these skills mastered. Because when we get these skills mastered, then they're able to learn anything. And so that's really where the freedom of it comes in is because it allows you to accelerate the education because your kid is probably going to get things done faster than if they're running through a, a textbook for a particular subject. And it also really frees you up to make the education relevant to your child. So whatever your child is really interested in or whatever your family story is, then you can really customize the content because you're worried about skills, not about knowledge. You're really worried about getting those skills down so that they can then get as much knowledge as they want on their own later. Okay, so what kind of struck me is very interesting about the way you laid this out in Trivial Mastery is you actually presented a lot of case studies in that book. And so if anybody is interested in your way of teaching those skills, that set of skills, your way of presenting that set of skills and having a child work through those skills and become proficient at them and master them, mm-hmm. Trivia Mastery is a good place to look. But you basically would go in with a family and look at where their child was and say, mm-hmm. okay, how can this year, how can we move this child to the next step along that path of learning the skills of, oh, help me remember. <laughs> Yeah, it could be any of the skills. It could be spelling skills or it could be, uh, you know, observational skills like through the scientific method or whatever. I've got a, I've got three skills checklists that I came up with, which, by the way, if your readers decide they wanted to join 
my mailing list, they'll get those PDFs of those skills checklists so they don't have to come up with them on their own. Okay. And we'll put up a link to where they can go and join up on that email list. We'll put that in the show notes. But you really do tailor it to the individual children, but it's done in such a way. I mean, you know, the things that struck me about your list is it would be things like, you know, they're practicing reading fluency. And one of the things you would put on the list for this child to do would be to read to a younger sibling a few times Mm -hmm. a week. And Mm -hmm. so it wasn't, even though you were kind of in large part eschewing textbooks Mm -hmm. and formal curriculum, Mm -hmm. you were doing it in such a way that it was very doable for the parents. Yeah. And I still do that. I mean, I work with a lot of moms who want to plan out the whole year. And I say, no, don't plan the whole year because skills can be acquired really quickly. If you're only working on common nouns for four weeks, those kids are going to get common nouns. And so what I suggest to them is that they only plan one semester or one quarter at a time and then go back after that quarter or that semester and reevaluate those skills again. And the way I've got this checklist put out is it's not just the skills that I have listed, but I've also got it in a grid with six different ways of evaluating from no knowledge to mastery. So, and that's all based on John Milton Gregory's uh, book, The Seven Laws of Teaching. He was actually a classical educator right around the time of the Civil War before classical education was taken out of the United States public schools. So his little tiny book, Seven Laws of Teaching, helped me come up with a way to measure our our success each semester. So that's kind of incorporated that into my checklist for the skills. Well, why do you think it's important for families to focus on these skills as opposed to independent subjects? Why do you think this is helpful for the needs of today's homeschooling family? Well, I love, I'm a very strategic person. I have a lot of vision and I'd love to see the end of the story. And I know that there's no child that's placing your family by accident. I believe it with all my heart that God put them in your family because there are certain things that you can give them or that certain generational stories that he wants to continue in their lives. And so like, for instance, with Aaron and the priestly family in the Old Testament, those kids had been immersed in all of the religious rituals of the priestly family, and they were equipped, just like there are certain stories in your line, in your husband's line, in your grandparents' line or whatever, that God wants to continue telling through our children. And so when we give them the skills, then they can learn whatever content they need to know. So like if your family loves nursing or your family's educators, it's very likely that you might have a child who is also going to be an educator somehow in some way. It may not be what you think. It may not be the typical way, but if you give them the skills, then they can learn all they need to know in terms of the content to be a good educator or to be a good nurse or to be a good priest or good whatever it is, a good artist, you know, whatever their particular calling is. But what I like to do is help my moms find the clues in their story and then use these checklists to tailor or customize type of learning plan for the semester each semester until we get to high school. And then we incorporate the subjects because we got to comply with the state and we want to get it, the transcript ready for colleges. But where I really want to see them one day eventually is to find their calling, to help their children get equipped so they find their calling. They know what their passion is so they can then go use that passion somewhere where the world has a need. And when they are there, then they're going to be so happy. They're going to be fulfilled and they're going to be just really singing. They'll be, you know, operating in a place where they're supposed to be. And skills is going to help you get there more than just unrelated, irrelevant knowledge. Wow. Yeah. And I guess that's really all we can hope for is to have kids who are kind of doing their life's work and satisfied with it. Yeah. And I think you can start that with the high school subjects. So we have to comply with the state. We've got to have four Englishes or we've got to have three sciences, depending on what school you want to go to, what state you live in, all that. 
So you have to come up with that. But honestly, the colleges don't care what sciences you do unless you're going to be an engineering and science person. You could do anatomy if you care about the human body. You could do equine, you know, if you love horses or whatever. So you can actually customize the content while teaching subjects in the high school years and start early with helping them find their calling. You know, it's like you're the coach, you're the mentor who's giving them all the opportunities. You see the clues in their life, you see what they really care about, and then you help them find, you know, opportunities to practice those things or to play with those things now so that when they get ready to go into the college or the workforce afterwards, they have a better idea of what they're interested in doing for their life. That's awesome. Well, Diane, thanks so much for being here today. Can you tell everyone where they can find you online? Yeah, and thank you for having me so much. I've enjoyed it. I'm at classicalscholar.com. And if you want to sign up for my uh, blog post, I would love to have you there. I send a love letter every Sunday that also has the week's teaching blog post. And like I said, my focus is on helping and equipping the moms. So I like to do teaching content for you to help you be a better teacher and a better planner. So that would be there. I'd love to have you come on board. All right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. And there you have it. Now, if you would like links to any of the books or resources that Diane and I chatted about today, you can find those on the show notes for this podcast. Those are at pambarnhill.com forward slash HSP 39. Also on the show notes for this podcast, we give you directions on how you can leave a review for the Homeschool Snapshots podcast on iTunes if you are so inclined. For those of you who have taken the time to do that, we say thank you very much. The ratings and reviews you leave for us on iTunes help us get the word out about the podcast to new listeners. And hey, don't forget that Maestro Classics Black Friday sale coming up later this week. We also link to the Maestro Classics store for you guys in the show notes. And be sure to use the code PAM to get your extra 17% off. You guys have a very blessed Thanksgiving and we'll be back again in another couple of weeks with another great homeschooling interview. Until then, keep on homeschooling. Homeschooling.